Welcome to another episode of uh, Dissecting Popular IT Nerds. Today, we've got uh, Drew Stone with us. So, uh, Drew, why don't you uh, tell us a little about yourself? Sure. I'm Drew Stone. I'm the Director of IT and Data Security at True Velocity Ammunition. Uh, we make polymer-cased ammunition and, uh, yeah, running an IT department for an ammo plant's just a uh, a little bit different than what you normally see in a lot of other places. So uh, thanks for having me on, Mike. No problem. That's That should be interesting. So do me a favor. Tell me a little bit about the uh, the career leading up to Velocity and, and um, what it was like doing that. And then if you jump in and tell us what's, you know, yeah, what is different about doing IT at a manufacturer of, of ammunition? Yeah, so uh, my career kind of got started out a little bit strangely. Uh, I'm actually an eighth generation farmer. Uh, my family had been farming, <clears throat> excuse me, up in central Illinois for quite a long time. And I worked out in the fields when I was younger, decided I quite liked the air conditioning. Uh, so <laughs> tried to find a way to get indoors a little bit more and had a knack for computers. Um, our company was sort of acquired, uh, kind of partnered with by a larger corporation uh, around the time I was in high school. And I had up until then kind of been helping to maintain a lot of our IT infrastructure, keeping things together, helping out our end users. And as the business grew, so did my role with that. And eventually, by the time I left for college, I was managing pretty much all aspects of our IT infrastructure. Uh, went off to college. I got scooped up by the government and did some stuff that I unfortunately can't really talk about right now. Uh, maybe in 20 years I can. Uh, past that. Keep going, past sorry. That, oh, no worries. I, uh, after working for the government for a while, I moved back home and uh, got scooped up by Monsanto, the company that had kind of partnered with us and partially acquired our family business years prior. Uh, because there's apparently very few people out there that can speak farmer and speak IT at the same time. So I kind of act as a translation layer between the business and the IT team. And that was definitely interesting. Um, if you've never seen a DB analyst out in the middle of a cornfield, uh, it's a sight to behold. Uh, but <laughs> we got people out into the field, kind of got the the whole uh, experience of what it's like to be a farmer and why some of the software products that we were building may not have been uh, entirely accepted by our farmers. Uh, you know, walking a mile in your user's shoes definitely tends to help. From there, uh, went and worked for a small startup company where we were using machine vision to uh, identify weeds, uh, diseases on plants, bugs on plants, things like that. Uh, using Google Glass. Um, and then I jumped back over to Monsanto, worked with them a little bit more, and then jumped over to the state of Illinois, helped with a cloud migration there. Uh, and then I wound up moving to Texas, uh, where I work for True Velocity now. Okay. Wow, there's a lot of little things in there that I will, we'll circle back to, I hope. Um, so working at, at True Velocity, the, um, so I'm just curious, what, what is different, but, it, you know, I'm curious now for both sides, both the farming aspect and the um, true velocity. And, and actually, you got to play with Google Glass in the middle of all of this, too, because, you know, I heard about it. And I remember the uh, 
the um, you know the the bubble that Google Glass started when it when it first came out, and then I never ever really saw anything come from it from my perspective and, and my experience, but the fact that you guys were actually doing something with it. So talk to me about the difference between farming IT and true velocity IT and, and what are what's something unique that you're doing with true velocity that that the rest of we geeks and nerds aren't doing. Yeah. So um farming IT is kind of in a weird and good place right now. Um kind of at the tail end of an explosion in growth when it comes to integrating technology into farming. Uh, when I was a part of it, uh, we had a uh, kind of an old guard of farmers. You know, you're what you think of when you think of a farmer, the guys that are out in a tractor, they're out doing the work, they come home, you know, very little technology involved in it. But that was really changing when I was involved in it. It was starting to get brought forward and brought up into the modern era where if you hop into a tractor's cab these days, at minimum, you're going to have three or four computer screens staring back at you. Um, and that includes everything from auto steer where the, the tractor can be driving itself to your yield monitors that say exactly, um, or your planting monitors, depending, you know, what's going, going into the ground at what rate, what's coming out of the ground at what rate, uh, all kinds of other things. And that's kind of what we're trying to do at True Velocity as well. Uh, manufacturing has, I don't want to say it's gotten to a rut, but it's kind of been similar for the past, I don't know how many years. Um, one of the, the details I can let slip from when I worked at the government is I did work on control systems. So things that run bread factories, you know, dams, stuff like that. And a lot of the stuff that was in use some of those things hadn't been turned off since they were installed in the late 70s or early 80s. Um, things just haven't changed that much on that front. And at True Velocity, we're, we're changing things up a little bit. So I uh, can't go into too many details because I don't think we've gone uh, terribly public with it yet. But yeah, we no, are working. Don't do any of that. Don't, don't give away <laughs> any trade secrets. But yeah. so, so having dealt with a couple of things like this. You're talking about getting away from like the SCADA systems and the PLCs and, and moving to um, something besides that. Or is this like a new version of the PLCs? Kind of both. Um, so the cool. new system that we're building has a combination of the two. So it has kind of the older school SCADA and PLC systems built into it. But then a lot of that is actually controlled by uh, C++ code. Uh, instead of having to do ladder logic or uh, anything like that, or, you know, the representation of relay logic. Um, a lot of our stuff is now being built in more standardized software engineering means versus the older school, you know, building out a ladder logic or a relay logic board. So, and is this all custom programming that, that you and your team are helping create for the organization? Or is this something that's more of like an industry standard that um, some of the industry um, leaders or, or people on the bleeding edge <laughs> of, of this industry are, are using together? A lot of the people out on the bleeding edge are starting to adopt this. Uh, we're working with a partner based out of Europe. Um, they're much larger in Europe than they are in the U.S. Uh, in fact, with some of their test equipment, I think we're the only ones in the U.S. that actually have any of it. So there are other companies that are doing this sort of thing. Um, but as far as 
if it's custom or not, our engineering team is building custom machinery, custom equipment, custom processes, and having to code it mostly from scratch to build what we need it to do, which in our case is assembling ammunition. How large of a, a development team do you have? I think we've got, this is more over on the engineering side. Uh, so my IT team supports them, but we don't interact a huge amount with them. I think we're up to five or seven at this point. So not a huge team, but we've got plenty of sharp people that have made some amazing things happen. Okay, so you're you're more on the um, support side and helping keep, I always joke around and, and tell people, you know, we, we just keep the blinky lights blinking. Um, <laughs> so you're more in that, that realm versus the overseeing the engineers who are doing the custom code for the, um, the control of the production lines and the manufacturing line. Yeah, um, I live more on the ops and the security side, uh, not necessarily the development side. Um, our engineering team, though, we do cross-pollinate quite a bit. If they've got some weird issues, they'll bring it to us. Or uh, as an example, we needed to figure out a way to get this monolith of a machine and the 18, I think, computers that live inside of it uh, hooked up to our network for reporting purposes so that it can send telemetry data back and tell us how many rounds it's making, et cetera. And we needed to work together to figure out a way to tap into the machine's network and basically speak its language so that it can then pull that data or mirror that data out over to another system that my team then controls that we can use for reporting back to the executives and the uh, plant operations team. And, and then, and then depending on your cybersecurity, uh, uh, infrastructure and, and beliefs that that can be a nightmare in itself. Just making sure that you can access it and not nobody else can, and they can't come in and pivot in somehow. And so that's, there's going to be a bit of a challenge around that too. Definitely architecting that sort of thing, especially when that new machine with 18 plus computers living inside of it lives on the same manufacturing floor and for the most part, the same network as a whole bunch of what I would consider older legacy equipment. Uh, yeah, it's definitely something we need to keep track of and make sure that it's guarded well. There's a lot of one-way checks. Things can only move in one direction. Um, very specific permission structures on everything. Uh, a couple other things that I won't dive too deep into, but yeah, yeah. it's definitely a challenge keeping that and all of the other devices we have safe while still letting us get useful information out of it. So, and steer me away if I need to. <laughs> um, so this experience that, that you picked up that we're not talking about, um, and how much of that leads into the ability to help control and oversee and, and work with this stuff? Did, uh, were you able to bring that experience forward into this realm or is it, is it um, experience that you had to leave behind you? No, it was definitely useful coming into this position. Um, not only just because I had at least a rough idea of what was going on and what was happening. I didn't have to start from scratch, but also because I kind of had an intuition for where the weak spots could be and where the issues could arise and what we needed to do to harden those areas and make sure that we were being very, very safe when it came to uh, any remote access or 
uh, data exfiltration, things like that. So no, it was definitely useful being able to bring that forward. Okay, so let me um, let me take a radical tack here too and, and jump back into the farming stuff because you know I, I get a, a little bit of a um, or I have a, a bit of empathy or understanding about that because I remember coming to the current job that I have and and I'm driving up to the facility and I'm thinking to myself why are you going to a trucking company? What kind of technology is a trucking company going to have? And, you know, I've been working here for 20 plus years, been challenged all the time. And um, one of the things that amazes me is when I get out there and talk with my peers like yourself and others, um, how often I find that we're, we're out there in the front of the pack on what we're doing with technology and how we're leveraging it. And it sounds like you were doing some of the same with the uh, the farming side. Um, so, you know, tell me a little more about that. Definitely. Um, I would say we definitely were kind of out on the bleeding edge with a lot of stuff. So the project that I initially kind of got scooped up with was a, I believe it was called Field Scripts. I think it's not going on anymore. Uh, but... It, it was basically a way to use big data analytics to determine how to better plant a field. So we would take soil sample data based on a, I think at the time, 10 meter grid, um, combine that with GIS information. So, you know, elevation changes, soil types, things like that, historical weather patterns, satellite imagery, all kinds of different data points. And we would crunch that through a whole bunch of algorithms and we would be able to spit out a way to say, hey, if you plant crops denser in this area and sparser in this area, your whole field will wind up with a 10, 15% yield increase. And we got it to work. Uh, in addition to that, we started looking at kind of other ways that we could augment that since, you know, hey, we're, we're doing undone stuff before or stuff that's never been done before. Let's see what else we can do. And I wound up at a we called it a groundbreaker conference. It was a bunch of our kind of trial participants, the people that were testing out this new system uh, down in Florida, I think, and ran into a friend there that actually had a pair of Google Glass. And I said, hey, can I take a look at those? Uh, and he said, no, I'll give you one better. Go show this to a bunch of farmers and you know figure out what they think about it. So I did. I went around to probably 30 or 40 different farmers that were down there and showed them how it worked, showed them what it did gave them some prompting on ideas we could possibly do with it, and then heard what their feedback was. And it was amazingly positive. They all wanted to see us do something with it. And they all wanted to, wanted to see us make something new and try something new. So we did. Wow, that's, that's really cool. Because like, whenever we were looking at it or talking about it, you know, the, the biggest thing that we could come up with, or one of the best things we could come up with was like, the, um, the ability to have the manual um, while you're looking at a tractor and, mm -hmm. and looking at the engine and, and trying to have somebody do maintenance around it, having that manual or knowing what all of the parts were given in a, a specific area. But, I, you know, I knew that farming was leveraging GIS and, and some of the big data, uh, but I, I haven't ever talked to anybody about that. And and to recognize, you know, really ingest or, or empathize with the fact that um, farming, <laughs> you, 
yeah, the, the low tech people that are digging in the dirt are actually consuming some of the largest amounts of the big data and um, leveraging that to increase their yield by 10%. Was that that the number you threw out there, I believe? Yeah, it was anywhere from 10 to 20% depending on the field. Um, That's huge. It was fantastic. And kind of to your point, it was a very interesting uh, junction of, like you said, the, the people that are out digging in the dirt and then big data, because one of the issues that we ran into on that project is, okay, well, we need their historical yield data so that we can train the models and, you know, put that in for further uh, differentiation. But how do we get that data from them? You know, where, where do we go to get it? And, and a lot of people in St. Louis originally thought, oh, well, they can just upload it to us. These people have dial-up at best. <laughs> Maybe yeah. a cell connection. <laughs> so we had to start thinking of alternatives to that. And eventually we just said, hey, you know, yield monitors, nine times out of 10, stick all of their data onto either a USB stick or an SD card. Send it to us. You know, either make a copy or just send us what you got. And I remember there was one guy that sent us, uh, he was a pretty big farmer somewhere out west, and he sent us like a gallon Ziploc bag full of SD cards. <laughs> so it's really interesting seeing that, that junction of, hey, we're doing this high tech, you know, cutting edge stuff and you don't have internet. How are we going to deal with it, with this, and how are we going to bridge this gap? <laughs> and and the uh, security person in me, or or the uh, <laughs> is thinking, oh man, taking all of those different devices and plugging them in, and and oh no, no, <laughs> it was a bit of a nightmare. Know, how else are you going to get the data? And and exactly. then oh man, all of the different formats that they mu all must be using, and everything mm -hmm. else. So okay. Um, one of the things that you brought up that, that you learned and did was, you know, being able to speak from personal knowledge of, of farming, being an eighth generation farmer, and then having the IT experience and then blending those two together. Um, talk, to, talk to us a little more about that and how that helped you um, advance in your career and, and how, did, how did you handle that in the areas because, um, you know, that doesn't really translate or the ability to talk business and IT has always been a, a great benefit for me. Um, but how did that translate or how did you learn the business as you moved into completely new industries? Because I'm pretty sure um, manufacturing of ammo is a lot different than growing a crop. <laughs> Just a little bit. Um... Yeah, so originally I uh, co-opted with Monsanto while I was in college uh, for a six-month term. And originally I was supposed to go in for the help desk and I got scooped up within two days, I think, before I even had my email set up. Somebody came up and said, hey, you're late for the meeting. Really, I don't have a calendar, so cool, let's go. Uh, it was for building out a new uh, dealer application, something for the dealers to put in their orders, their shipping, uh, financials, everything, uh, kind of interface with our ERP system on the back end. And that was where I got my first taste of, oh, okay, I, I, I can speak farmer. I know from experience of 
farming what this is like, but I also can talk to our subject matter experts and our business analysts and architects to help kind of determine where this app is going to wind up going. And getting that early on in my career was incredibly, incredibly helpful because from then on, I wanted to learn as much about the business as I could, not just, you know, the kind of back-end hidden side of it of, okay, well, you know, here's the financials, here's how this is going to work, here's how we're going to interface with this system, but also, why are we doing this? Why, you know, what problem are we trying to solve for our end users? How are they going to see it and what lens are they going to see it through? So I actually wound up working with our UI UX team uh, fairly extensively, going over wireframes of new systems and you know new phone apps, things like that, to both help the UI UX team in, hey, this is how a farmer is going to view it. This is what they're going to see it as. And then also going to the farmer side and saying, you know, this is what we're trying to build. Can you show me how you would want to use it? And having the perspective of, you know, the kind of back-end business, how everything integrates, what we're trying to do from a financial perspective, mixing that with what is the real problem that we're trying to solve out in the real world and how are the people that are in, you know, embracing that problem going to deal with it. That's been incredibly helpful regardless of where I've wound up. Uh, I would actually challenge you real quick on that, only on one one aspect of it. You're saying the the business and the IT side, but but you were talking three different groups there. You have you have your developers and the people that are creating the UI and the UX. You have the people who are trying to run the business and make money off of what's being developed, and then you actually have the customer who is going to consume and and use all of this. So you're you're not just talking IT and business but you're also talking IT business and customer. True, true. I think the uh, uh, the whole time I was uh, with Monsanto, I was kind of thinking of it as, okay, what do we have from the farmer perspective and what do we have from the company perspective? But no, I think you're completely correct. Uh, we do have those three different parts. Uh, there was another kind of test project that we worked on where it was a almost a social network for farmers where they could... Uh, check in, report what they're seeing out in their fields. And then if we get so many reports of a disease or a certain pest spreading in an area, then we could send alerts to other farmers. And that really kind of exemplifies what you were talking about. I'd almost forgotten about that until you mentioned it. But we had to communicate with the development group pretty extensively on, you know, hey, this is how farmers kind of think this is what it needs to look like. This is how it needs to function, or they're just not going to use it. We had to work on the business side of it with, here's the analytics that we can get from it so that we can see, okay, well, this disease has moved into this region. So do we you know, look towards chemicals for that? Do we look towards a different variety that's going to be planted in the next few years? How do we you know, work our business intelligence for the future on that? And then working with the customers, obviously, to say, hey, this is a good, you know, this is a system that can help you as well, because now you can see, oh, you know, rust is moving in from the south. So you should probably start calling your chemical dealer and seeing what we can do about that. So working with all three teams is definitely critical. And thank you for catching that. Yeah, no problem. It's, it was just one of the things because, you know, it's. You hit on something that I learned really early on and try to make sure to to get my 
my coworkers and, and my team asking all the time is why? Because we have so many people who come to us and say, I need this. And and they can tell you what they need or or they they designed some kind of a solution, but they've designed some kind of a solution in like Excel. Um, and because they know Excel and they know their problem, so they match those two together. And, and I learned early on to start asking, well, wait, what are you trying to do? What's what's the real goal here? How are we trying to make business better? Or what, what are you trying to do that helps you in your day-to-day life with this solution that you're telling me about so that I can actually focus in on the problem? Because typically, I had a much broader or bigger tool set to work from than they did. So I, I learned to ask that question, why? And, you know, asking from all three of those perspectives, well, what kind of money is this going to make us or, or what kind of financial benefit or cost avoidance can we get from it? There's a business. Um, you know, how are we going to do it? There's the the geeks. And then why are we doing it is the customer. So definitely. Um, no, and that's one thing I've tried to instill with my team uh, here at True Velocity is always ask the question of why. A lot of times, like you said, people will come to us and say, hey, the solution isn't working. Well, it's a solution that we've never seen before and we have no idea what it's trying to do. So have that discussion, talk to them, figure out what the end goal is in this process and then either build from there, help them fix it or talk about building something new. Any of those are valid options. Yeah. Um. All right, let's jump jump rails into a, a different area too. So tell me a little bit about your experiences with technology as you were growing up. What kind of what world did you grow up in? Because you know, when I was when I was in elementary school, um, there were no computers around, not not for public use, and and we were just told, all right, be home by the time the streetlights came on, <laughs> and payphones were a thing, and you know, being anchored to a part of the house because the phone cord could only reach so far was some of my experience. What about you? Uh, Somewhat similar. I think I'm a little bit younger, so we did have computers. Uh, I remember uh, when I was growing up playing games on DOS with my dad, uh, we have had uh, some sort of ancient Dell machine that I think I still have kicking around somewhere here uh, with some games on it. And that's kind of where I got started with everything. Uh, Windows 95 didn't come out until I was almost in my teens, I think. I don't remember, honestly. Uh, but it, it was very much the same. Uh, and especially since we lived out in the country, internet wasn't really a thing for us. We had dial-up uh, probably by the time I turned 10-ish. And it, it worked. It was okay. Uh I remember specifically one incident where we needed to download some printer drivers and uh, that only took four hours. Um, (laughs) In multiple calls. Oh yeah, it was, it it was not fun. I don't miss those days, but yeah, uh, kind of watching technology progress and we were out in the country. So we were just a little bit behind the curve. I had friends in school that, you know, they had cable TV, which that was an amazing thing for me. Uh, we only got over the air because there was no cable near us. Um, when broadband internet started becoming a thing, we still didn't have it. Uh, I remember when we got our 
first kind of real broadband at uh, our office, and it was two teamed T1 lines, and we were blown away having two megabits to play with. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that's that's with some of it reserved for other things because Mm-hmm. T1s are 1.5, so yeah. <laughs> I noticed when you, uh, or at least when when you got one of your degrees, so I was thinking that's when you'd um, joined into the uh, the workforce and everything, but I, I'm looking at, at some more of the history and recognize that you were, like, um, I remember coming to work and, and being excited about getting a cell phone and, and thinking that was cool <laughs> and, and how now, you know, five-year-olds are getting cell phones and, and mm-hmm. cell phones that can do so much more. Uh, oh, I remember when I first figured out, well, first had a Palm Pilot that was capable of Bluetooth and Bluetoothing that to my Motorola Razor and getting MobileNet off of that. And that was the most amazing thing ever, being able to see email or web pages wherever I went. And it blew my mind at the time. And now you've got... I mean, my phone has been hanging with work emails the whole time we've been talking. So <laughs> it's just a normal part of life. Yeah. Oh, man. And then, like, cameras on them, too. I, mm-hmm. I swear, I remember thinking, why would you put a camera on a cell phone? What What the... Why? And then here, every take, every picture I've taken for the last... Probably the last decade has been from my phone. And, and now I half of what I'm deciding which phone to get has to do with the camera. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I uh, I do photography as a hobby. And uh, one of the sayings that's always rung true is the best camera you can ever own is the one that you have with you. And it's just unlocked so much potential having a device that has a good camera always in your pocket. I still carry a bigger camera around when I know I want to go take pictures of something, but I can't count the number of times that just whip out the phone, take a quick picture, clean it up in post. Hey, that actually turned out well. Um, yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so for me, this one's kind of a, a personal one because I've always gone one direction and, and you know, the, the name of the show goes the other direction. So are you a geek or are you a nerd? <laughs> and, and what's the difference? Um, that's a great question. I've been called both so many times in my life, uh, <laughs> normally by my wife. <laughs> I think I sit on this, the, uh, the, the non-side of the fence, or I sit directly on the fence of, yeah, I'll take either. I'm good with it. They both mean to me roughly the same thing. So, <laughs> Okay, because I've always thought of the geek being the, the technically minded and, and computer kind of guy, and then my kids have been hit me with nerds. Nerds don't even have to know computers or anything. They just have to be a subject matter expert on something. And then they're that kind of nerd. So an anime nerd or, you know, I guess I can see that. Um, I grew up in a a very small town. So like my, my high school graduating class was 92. So there weren't too many of us. I think there were like three or four of us in the school, you know, uh, freshman through senior at any one time. So we didn't really, uh, we didn't really call each other all that much other than, hey, idiot, get over here and fix this. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah, see, my my graduating class, I'm not even sure how big it was, but it was full of really technically um, astute people because growing up in Los Alamos where uh, the oh, home no. of the nuclear bomb, 
you know, and just the number of people that worked for the national laboratories up there. So I totally get not being able to talk about things. Um, <laughs> but it was definitely an interesting experience growing up there. So um, let's see. What's tell me something else interesting? What's one of the one of the times you know the face palm moment that you just you were dealing with somebody <laughs> helping somebody out and you're just like oh my god so <laughs> a couple odd tickets that kind of fit that um so here in texas you know in what would that have been february of 21 we had the snowpocalypse where oh, yeah. you know massive snowstorm all the fun uh, this was while our company was still pretty much on-premise everything. We hadn't shifted away from an on-prem exchange server yet. That was mostly due to regulatory concerns, which I can touch on later, but um, we've fixed that since then, thankfully. Uh, but at the time, all of our stuff was housed at our facility, and we did have a uh, full-building UPS system that was good for something like 70 or 80 hours worth of use. Well, it's the snowpocalypse. We vastly exceeded that. <laughs> um, our facility was out power, without power for something like five or six days. And uh, when the power went offline, all of our email systems went down. And of course, I'm getting phone calls pretty constantly saying, hey, you know, can we get email back up? How are we going to get this fixed? What's going on? Most of the time when I told them, yeah, our facility doesn't have power, there's nothing we can do until that comes back. Most people were sane enough to go, oh, okay, yeah, that's fine. Uh, but I did have one person that uh, she called and said, you know, well, do you know when email is going to be back? And I said, well, probably when the power comes back on. We can't really do much until then. Well, can you get that back on sooner? Um, <laughs> didn't quite know how to handle that. That one kind of stopped me for a moment. <laughs> Yeah, I'll get um, right on that. <laughs> yeah, let me uh, call let me a power call company. <laughs> exactly. Uh, we did have a couple years and years ago, uh, back when I was in college and worked for a computer store, uh, we had one very interesting case that I don't think we ever found a resolution to. A uh, lady came in and said, hey, uh, I've got a problem with my iPod. Do you guys do iPod repairs? And at the time, no, we didn't. We had the little, um, you know, prepaid boxes, basically, that you would buy the box for, I don't know, it was like 60 bucks, put your device in it, had a prepaid shipping label, you'd ship it to this company, they would do the repair and send it back. So we said, you know, we've got these, the only thing is, is that they don't cover liquid damage. So what sort of damage happened to your iPod? You know, was it liquid damage or not? And she kind of thought for a second and then looked at us and said, I don't know. And we all kind of looked back at her and went, okay, you're going to need to explain a little bit. Yeah. She said, well, it was sitting in my backpack and I, I guess I put my backpack down the wrong way and there was a banana in there and the banana got mashed into the click wheel of the iPod. Does that count as liquid damage? <laughs> um, we, we all kind of looked at each other and had to go, you know, I don't know. <laughs> So we gave her the phone number for the, uh, the, that was on the box and said, you know, give these guys a call, see what they say. And if they say they'll do it, come on back and, uh, you know, we'll sell you the box. Well, we never saw her again. So all we can assume is that bananas do count as liquid damage. <laughs> oh man. Well, and or self-inflicted wounds. So, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh -huh. 
Um, what are the, some of the things that you've done that you feel have helped you get promoted? And, and I mean, I know, I know that for me, one of the most critical pieces is that ability to talk amongst the different groups that we've already been mentioning. But are, are there other things that you've done that, that you've learned that, that have helped you in your career? I mean, that's the major one, uh, being able to communicate well with the business, with the developers, with uh, the customers. Having that communication open between all the parties really, really helps. And I know that's helped me in my career a lot. Um, another side of it, though, is just pure curiosity and looking for things that are out there that could potentially help, could potentially uh, change the way that you're doing things for the better. Uh, the Google Glass situation was kind of like that, where uh, if it hadn't been for that friend that had a set, we wouldn't have embarked down that path. And, you know, having the chance to go show it to a bunch of customers and say, what do you want us to do with this? What do you think would be cool to do with it? And hearing the the variety of answers that they came back with, it, it was astonishing. Everything from having... Uh, their yield monitors directly above their eyes to what we wound up doing eventually, which was using machine vision to identify bugs, weeds, diseases, things like that. So always being curious, always wanting to know how you can use something in your business or if it can be helpful in your business. Um, and then the final part I'd say is watching what other verticals do and seeing how they do things and why they do things the way they do. So at Monsanto, I worked with uh, a small software team that we kind of turned, uh, we used the, uh, I think it's Lockheed's Skunk Works model and kind of worked on that a little bit to give us the ability to make these new systems, these new trial things that we could build relatively cheaply. If they worked great, we can build them bigger later. If they didn't, burn it down, start on something else. What do you think about that, that saying? Um, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. In some cases, that's okay, uh, especially when it comes to technology. And this is the the security side of my job kicking in. Um, if it's not broke, it just hasn't been exploited yet. So <laughs> you need to be on the lookout for what it's doing, why it's doing it. See if you can, you know, patch it up, shore it up. If it's a business critical system. Definitely take a good look at it and see, you know, hey, is this doing what we need it to do? Is it fulfilling all of our goals or are there pain points that we can fix here uh, that can help us with uh, either customer adoption or just making people's lives easier and making them more productive when they use it? So a lot of times, if something isn't broke and it's still in use, there's probably a reason, but you might be able to do better. Yeah, see, I've, I've started to adopt the, the thought, if, if it ain't broke, break it and make it better. Exactly. Um, but, but yeah, there's all of those critical pieces. You, you definitely need to be aware of your surroundings and, and uh, what do we call that? Situationally aware. <laughs> mm -hmm. Indeed. Yeah, a lot of the, uh, another thing that popped into my head with the, if it isn't broke, don't fix it. Uh, like I mentioned, there were some, programmable logic controllers that I've worked with in the past that had been online since, you know, 1982. They'd never been updated. They'd never been touched. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of the reasons we were looking at those is because the manufacturers decided it's not broke, so we're going to break it. 
And they broke it in a very interesting way by putting an Ethernet controller directly connected to it. No security, no nothing. You know, these are devices that were built before the Internet was a thing. And all of a sudden they're exposed to the wider Internet. Doesn't go well. So completely exposed to the wider Internet. In some cases, yeah, uh, completely without firewalls or anything like that. Um, That has somewhat gotten better from what I've seen in the industry. Uh, I know at our shop, when I first got here, it was already way better than that. It was running on its own air-gapped, isolated network. Things didn't talk out of it, uh, which that was difficult for the business to accept because they're not getting metrics out. So that was part of the challenge is how do we get these metrics out? How do we communicate with the devices in a safe way? How do we make sure that nobody else can talk to them? You know, that sort of thing. But yeah, yeah I'm, I'm um, thinking of that, that service that's out there and I can't think of their name right now, but they're constantly scanning the internet for everything. So they can tell you who's got cameras that still have default passwords on them across the world. They can tell you, mm-hmm. they could tell you where all of those PLCs are or what network they're on. And um, do you know the one I'm talking about? Yeah, I think it's Shodan. Um, yeah, there was exactly. a, there was a talk at there's a talk at DefCon years and years ago. I only ever saw it on uh, YouTube. At least I think it was DefCon, and I think it was called something like "Drinking from the Fire Hose," known as Shodan. And the guy just went on a you know hour hour and a half long bent about you know here are the things that I found on Shodan, and he's including stuff like traffic lights or. Uh, damn control systems, things that you don't want people playing with. <laughs> exactly. And then especially something that's been out there since the 80s that you can find manuals on and have, if you've got total access to it, oh, man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it <laughs> yeah interesting stuff nightmare. there. At least, at least it helps fill the uh, curiosity need. Um, <laughs> you know, and, that, that curiosity statement that you mentioned earlier makes me think of something, you know, I, I grew up with that generation and, and I think all of us had versions of this of, you know, my parents telling me, don't touch that, you know, don't touch that button. And I was probably somewhere in my mid twenties when I finally had the insight that, wait a minute, it's a button. Somebody engineered that button for a reason. It's mm-hmm. there to be pushed. Now, it's always wise to kind of understand what it does before you push the button. (laughs) Um, You know, like the delete button, you really want to understand that before you hit the delete button, what it does. But but somebody created the button for a reason. Definitely. I was incredibly lucky growing up. My parents really wanted to kind of nurture that curiosity and... Uh, we had a an auction house that would do uh, like estate sales or uh, just, I don't want to say junk sales, but things that people didn't want anymore. And it was anything, really. And it was only a few miles from our house. And we would go hang out there um, whenever they ran their sales about once a week. And it was great because every now and then you would get these ancient computers that would come up and my parents would buy them for five bucks and be like, okay, here you go. Have fun. Tear it apart. Um, you know, put it back together. Nine times out of 10, it didn't work again, but it was a great learning experience of this is what does this, this is what does that. I shouldn't touch this. I should touch that. And it, like you said, it goes back to that curiosity of what does this do? Why does it do it? 
and can I use it? Uh, yeah. That's been hugely helpful in all aspects of IT. Yeah, that how can I use it? That's one of those things that there's so many different ways. So, um, all right, back to the Google Glass for just a second. So are they still using Google Glass to do that kind of stuff? I don't think so. Uh, that project, I think, got shelved during the Bayer purchase and a couple other things on the business side. Uh, so I don't think they're doing that anymore. But uh, Google Glass itself, as far as I'm aware, is still alive and well. They just sell it as an enterprise version now. Um, the first generation one was eh. It did its job. It was designed to you know get the idea into people's hands, and it was a raging okay. But the enterprise ones that I played with kind of before I got out of that space are actually pretty decent. So a raging okay. <laughs> like that. Um, you know, the, the reason I was wondering was because, you know, here I am, we're talking about curiosity and everything. And I'm I'm already blending that with the current or some of the current technologies that we're seeing more and more of. So um, and I can't remember where I saw it. But I saw something with farming and drones. And mm -hmm. so being able to fly over the field and, and get your um, yield assessment and, and having drones do those inspections for you. So being able to take exactly what you guys were using Google Glass for, put that into capability into a drone and letting drones then hit up huge fields and, and do this um, stock by stock inspection of of the the fields so oh yeah no drones have been drones have been huge in ag um they were just kind of getting started when i was in it and they've only gotten bigger uh it's like aerial photography on steroids that you can call up on command and it's a whole lot cheaper uh one other thing though that i know was getting played with i have no idea where this went i only talked to the guy a few times uh, he was a rather large farmer, I think in Montana, I don't remember. And his son was really into drones. So he built a homemade hexacopter that weighed like 60 plus pounds. I mean, this thing was huge and outfitted it with spray tanks. And what he decided to do is see, okay, what happens if I do targeted application of herbicides, weed killers in a field? You know, how much is that going to change my inputs and is it going to help my yields? So they took a little 40 acre field and basically gave it to his son and said, here, you go ahead and run your tests with this and let's see what happens. And this is all completely manual. He hadn't integrated machine vision or anything like that to identify where the weeds were or, you know, any technology like that that was coming later. But just through manual piloting and manually running the drone once or twice a week, I think. Uh, they dropped their inputs by something like 60 or 80% and the yield was unaffected. It was fantastic. <laughs> nice. Okay. So huge cost avoidance that, that led to uh, a higher revenue because of the cost, the less, less cost. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was, they weren't really expecting any higher yields out of the deal. They were just hoping that it would be, you know, parity of typical broadcast spraying and it was. The yields were pretty much the same, uh, but they used way, way less in the way of inputs. So they were able to make a higher profit off of that field just because they were sending a drone out to go spray for them. So, um, all right, let me 
try to jump tracks back into the the um, true velocity. And what are some of the things that you guys are doing that, that you can talk about? Like, um, there's got to be some testing. There's got to be some quality control. That there's got to be some stories around that, and that that are different as far as IT or just you know your experience with the business. Um, you know, I, I'm obviously thinking of things like the uh, oh the high speed cameras and watching. Um, what happens when they're hitting some of the uh, gel blocks or something like that. But is there anything else out there that, that you're having to deal with and support? Oh, we go one step further than the gel blocks. Uh, this one, I know they've mentioned in an interview, so I'm fine to talk about it. So our stuff, <laughs> I have to keep thinking of that in the back of my mind. Yeah, that's fine. Um, yeah, definitely not trying to get you in any trouble or us. <laughs> so our composite cases are translucent. You can see light through them, unlike, you know, brass casings where you can't. So uh, our chief of engineering, uh, my manager, actually, Ken Overton, uh, Dr. Ken Overton, he built a clear chamber that we could fire rounds in. And we could watch how propellant is burned inside of the round as it's burning. We had a whole bunch of high-speed cameras focused right on it, looking at it very, very closely. And we could track the flame front from when the primer was struck and the powder was initially ignited all the way up until the round actually separated from the case. And doing stuff like that and being able to see this data that no one's ever seen before uh, let us do some really cool optimization when it came to making our rounds uh, to the point where, uh, I can't remember which round it is, but one of our rounds, we were able to decrease the powder load in it by 10%, thus saving us on inputs. Uh, but we get all of the exact same characteristics. So the same speed, the same energy on impact, same flight characteristics, everything. So we get to deal with some pretty interesting uh, tooling as well. Uh, we've got our test lab, which I joke, my office sits at the end of it. Yes, the end <laughs> that they shoot at. <laughs> That's why I started giggling right away. <laughs> so I, I hear them very well when they're testing, uh, but I know we've got uh, several traps in the way between me and the actual bullet and then like a quarter inch of AR-500 steel between uh, the traps in the wall and then multiple concrete walls until it gets to me. But still a little disconcerting every now and then, uh, especially when we're shooting some of the bigger stuff. But yeah, you can't help but think of what's happening on the other side of the wall. <laughs> exactly. Well, especially when, you know, where we're at, it kind of sounds like somebody hammering for the most part, you know, like you know, somebody banging on the wall, but you know, somebody's shooting at you. Um, but our test lab has all kinds of fun things. So we've got uh, one station, which is designed for platform testing, which means these are real weapons, uh, either that we've designed or that you know we're using from partners. And how does our stuff work in that? And we can capture all sorts of data around it. And then we've got test barrels, which are specially designed barrels that they're hard mounted. They're you know breech fed one at a time. But we've got pressure transducers all the way down the barrel so that we can track pressure curves as the round uh, separates from the casing, moves down the barrel, and exits. And then we've got laser curtains all the way down this tube so that we can see you know, what the speed looks like at different locations. If there's any fall off, make sure the bullet is not tumbling, make sure it's doing what we expect it to do, that sort of stuff. And the amount of data that we can gather from that is kind of staggering. Um, 
and we modified, well, we didn't really modify, we kind of used that same technology in our molding process so that we can gather uh, pressure data inside every cavity of the mold every time a shot of plastic goes into it. And that lets us take a look at, you know, how is the mold performing? Is the plastic flowing the way we think it should be? Um, what pressures did we see? And then it also lets us, you know, filter out the rejects before they ever get filled or, you know, make it further down the process. So very interesting stuff and staggering amounts of data that comes out of these things. Yeah, I was just, I mean, uh, you mentioned one thing that I've never heard of, but I'm, I'm thinking I've got it right, you know, laser curtains. So mm -hmm. I'm, I'm just imagining a section in, in a room where, you know, lasers going either top down or left to right and just a using that for the sensors and being able to do imaging or something because of that. Am I, yeah. am I somewhere on target with that? No, you're pretty much there. Uh, we use laser curtains in a couple different places in the facility. On the one hand, it's from a uh, testing perspective. So we can get very, very accurate measurements as to when a projectile breaks the plane of that laser curtain. It'll immediately trigger and we've got, you know, sub-millisecond, I think it's down to a couple microsecond timing intervals that we can determine, you know, where that round is. Uh, and then we also use it out on the machine floor as a safety feature. So for some of our equipment where manual intervention is required, we'll have laser curtains in place. Those, I think, have been a little more industry standard for a while. Um, but those will shut the machine down and you know, trigger an e-stop if somebody breaks their plane while the device is in function or in cycle. Wow. Okay. That's kind of cool. So, you know, all, so there is some reality to the, the thought of those lasers sweeping through the, the room as somebody's trying to break in and, and steal something from the, uh, <laughs> you know, a, a mission impossible five or whatever it was. So I've always wanted to build a room like that just to confuse the heck out of anybody that breaks into it. Um, wouldn't do anything. It would just look cool, but <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then keep pumping in smoke or something so that exactly see the lasers, <laughs> <laughs> keep the hazers going all the time. But how, uh, those laser curtains, how visible are they? Or is it, is it not visible to the human eye? And then they're infrared for the most part. So you okay. can't see that they're on. You'll see kind of a dull glow from either side. Um, and that's about it. You know, kind of what you'd see from uh, uh, the IR illuminator on like a security camera or something like that. Yeah, you put the right glasses on or, or something that, that does that separation, uh, the polarization, and then you can see it. Or, yeah. you know, or using another of, camera to look. <laughs> exactly. You can kind of see it on phone cameras. Those are still, those are getting more and more IR shielded uh, as camera generations improve. But uh, you can still kind of see them on that as like a purplish glow. Uh, but yeah, that's a, a good way for us to either keep machines safe, which, like I said, I think that's been an industry for a little while. I haven't been on the manufacturing side that long, so I'm not sure. Um, but from a testing perspective, it's invaluable being able to get, you know, ultra precise data as to exactly when something moves in front of that sensor. Um, but then for our QA side, we use a whole lot of other optical measuring systems as well. Uh, first time I ever saw one of the giant uh, Zeiss optical measuring machines was at our facility. And we do that to, to test some of the internal components of our rounds before they either go out for manufacturing or, you know, if we're prototyping something new. Okay. 
Oh, and so, one other fun piece that yeah, we have please. that <laughs> this is one piece that a lot of places I don't think do. We actually do have an MRI machine in our office. Uh, it's an industrial one. It's a smaller one, but it allows us to take um, take pictures basically of the inside of a completed round so that we can see how's the powder packing. You know, is the well, and it gives us enough resolution to say is the bond between you know, different plastic components or the plastic in the round or the plastic in the base, you know, what, what does the bond look like at a very fine level? Are there any bubbles? Are there any gaps? Things like that. Uh, so it was a kind of an eye-opening experience when I came in for my interviews three years ago and you see the big, you know, radiation warning sticker on the door. <laughs> it's kind of like, uh, I know we make Wait ammunition, but what else do we make? <laughs> yeah. Wait a minute. <laughs> so, um, so how do they, uh, there's got to be some of the rounds that you're investigating that, that have magnetic properties to them that are, are still certain, have levels of that, right? Yeah, or, I, I did misspeak. That's, it's not technically, it's not an MRI machine, it's a CAT scanner. It uses x-rays for everything. Um, uh, we just okay. call it the MRI for ease of use. Ease of um, use, yeah. But, uh, but yeah, all of our rounds actually uh, have a magnetic component. So we use a steel base at the very bottom of it uh, to kind of anchor it, to give the gun something to pull on to eject the round. And then also it makes it easier from a cleanup perspective, at like, you know, a training range or something, because you can just wave a magnet over it and you pick them all up. It makes it so much easier. Yeah. Okay. Interesting thought there. <laughs> um all right. So what advice do you have for t tomorrow's generation or anybody that's listening to us that's, that's trying to figure out how to uh, get out of the uh, the data center in a closet and, and get into the executive uh, boardroom, um, at least as as a geek or as a nerd? How do how do how do we help make that transition besides at the very least being able to speak to the business and understand why? What else? What else you got for us? Being able to speak to the business is hugely important, like we've said, but being able to understand the business, figure out where they're coming from, what is driving the business side of it, start understanding where, you know, the, the profit and loss statements come from, what the, the motive is for, you know, how can we earn money on this thing? Try and look at it from the business's perspective, as well as stay curious, find new and cool things that can make a section of the business more efficient. It can make their lives easier. Look into those things, you know, prototype some ideas. They don't have to physically have the device with you. Just, you know, write down some ideas, talk to people about it, try and get some support of, hey, would it be cool if we could do this? And, you know, chop it around, go talk to users, go out and live in their shoes for a little bit. Um, it's always good just to to get out of the data center, get out of the server room and uh, go see what people are doing and see what their problems are. And you might have a solution already that can help them. Yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah, it's amazing what we have in our toolbox. And, and it's it's that other piece of it that that we're not saying, but it's that that ability to see. Damn alerts. Um, <laughs> the. <laughs> to see how something's being used and see how you could reapply its capabilities in a uniquely or a completely new way for a separate type of solution. Exactly, exactly. It's how can I, how is somebody else using this? 
can I do something similar or can that thing help me in this other completely unrelated area? There have been so many times throughout my career where, you know, drones were a great example. They were cool. They were fun. We were using them for aerial imagery and somebody went, hey, I could put a sprayer on that. Let me see how that works. Being able to kind of think sideways, think outside the box and see, is this an application that's never been tried before? Is this something that another, you know, business vertical somewhere out there, say the healthcare industry has already done? And if so, can we adapt it to what we're doing? Um, how can it help us? Can it make us money? Those sorts of questions. Those are, it's all great advice. It's, you know, understand the financials, speak the business, look at it from the sides, think outside the box. All of, all of those fun ones and put them into practice and then communicate with others. Talk. That's the big um, one. Yeah. Be able, be able to talk to people. That is the big um, one. Uh, so is there anything you want to promote, Drew? Is there anything that, that Drew wants people to know about or, or you want the world to know about Drew? Uh, I mean, come check out our website, tvammo.com. See what we're working on. I know we've got our commercial line out there right now. Um, yeah, I, I don't have too much to promote. I'm, I'm an IT guy at heart. I like to hide in the dark, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> give me pizza and a monster. Exactly. I'm good to go for the weekend. I'll get that server upgrade done. <laughs> <laughs> All right, sir. Well, it's been an awesome conversation. Thank you very much. Um, thank you. I'm, and I hope uh, this was enjoyable for you. I know it was for me. It was definitely a very interesting and engaging conversation. Hey, it was fantastic. Thank you so much for having me out here. I appreciate it. Well, thank you. And, and those of you listening, please make sure to stop by wherever you got this podcast from. Um, give us a, a thumbs up and, and leave a comment. Let us know how we're doing. Um, that's definitely how we get to know what we need to do and how we can make this better. And, and um, fit your needs. So please, customers, let us know. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much, Drew.